for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. From climate change to energy and environmental matters, you're listening to Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome to Unleashed on TNT. This is Mark Morano coming at you. All right. Breaking news. Breaking news. Saturday Night Live never heard of anyone losing banking services due to their political views. In other words, Saturday Night Live doesn't ever, doesn't even know the word debanking, which is now a very common term and used throughout the media and in financial industry. Well, here is Saturday Night Live claiming that Donald Trump made up a word meaning debanking. And then I'm going to talk to you about who we know that's actually been debanked and some of the debanking scandals going on as all part of an effort to prime us for central bank digital currency, for carbon carbon footprint uh, monitoring cards pushed by uh, the United Nations and MasterCard. But let's go to clip one, Saturday Night Live skit mocking Donald Trump. Trump did have a slight stumble this week while talking about banks, and he introduced an interesting new term called debank. We're also going to place strong protections to stop banks and regulators from trying to debank you. They want to debank you, and we're going to debank. I don't know what the hell debank means, but he might have to take de-ambulance to see the doctor. Yeah, that's uh, passes for comedy. Oh, it's the bank and the ambulance. Uh, look at that. He, he, they called it a gaffe that he made us a, a stumble this week because saying that. Let's take a look at what debanking actually is. This is a clip to former EU parliament member Nigel Farage talking and had the Freedom of Information Act. This isn't just an opinion. He proves it. He had the documents from the government that a major bank in England debanked him over his views on climate change. Roll clip two. But one of the key reasons I was debanked was over climate change, where they make it absolutely clear a particular area to consider is NF's stance on climate change. It does not align with the bank's purpose. And that happened. This happened in 2023 that he got these documents. And we're seeing this now happen in a whole host of issues. First of all, in Canada, during the Freedom Convoy, which we should have Andrew Lawton on the show in Friday's episode, you don't want to miss that. We're going to be talking all about his book, about the inside story of what Justin Trudeau did to the trucker convoy in Canada. And one of them was debanked them. He literally declared them domestic terrorists, called up the banks, and the banks fully cooperated and wouldn't allow these people access to their own money. Oh, it's a form of debanking. Debanking is also when a bank doesn't want you to have anything that wants wants nothing to do with you and, and loses you as a customer. What Justin Trudeau did was even another step beyond that because they still had the bank. Their money was in the bank. They didn't like just say, here, take your money and go elsewhere. They said, hey, we got your money and you can't use it. Um, and then, of course, you had like uh, Trump's national security advisor, Flynn, who uh, faced very similar. I think that was uh, uh, the Bank of America, if I'm not mistaken, came out with him. And they literally said, because you're a, a reputational risk to our company, we cannot do an account with you and a loan with you. And we're seeing this all over. Even people like Candace Owens, I think, was banned from um uh, the travel app, uh, whatever it's called, can't think of the travel app name, uh, where you call up and get your you know vacation. 
they started banning people based on politics. Now, that's not technically debanking, but this is happening. And anyone who's considered toxic politically, anyone who's considered against what the standard you know, mainstream view of the government, if you oppose anything the government does, you're subject to be banking, debanked. Why is that? Because the banks and the government are like one. This is corporate government collusion, and the banks want to do the bidding because the governments are the regulators, and then the banks, if you get wealthy enough, the banks start regulating and telling the government what to do through the through the politicians and the unelected um, bureaucracy. So Donald Trump is right on warning about this. Uh, when you do a central bank digital currency, we are not very far. If, you know, Joe Biden's already did in America here, the uh, executive order to look into you know, the United States going this. This was back in 2022, I believe. Uh, and we are now moving a pace. They're going to try anyway to impose that upon us. Well, that's a situation where you're going to have your government digital currency available. And the Bank of England said the quiet part out loud. You can only spend on what the government deems sensible. No hamburgers and no firearms and no uh, you know travel or too much travel or too much gas or too many airline flights. And you will be uh, a form of deep banking, you will be cut off from your ability to spend money. Well, when you look at the whole central bank digital currency, uh, this is a way of controlling individuals uh, it's, and also to censor speech. So imagine going to the store and uh, you know whether you have your uh, you know your card from your corporate uh, collusion bank, which is just about every major bank in the in the world. I can't, I don't know of any that aren't that are that would stand up to any of this. Uh, you go in and say you can't use your you can't buy these groceries until you remove the hate speech that you said on social media. We're not very far from that day. In fact, uh, that's what YouTube and Facebook and Google they've been all pushing that very hard on people. Like, oh, we'd love to have you back, but you know you violated our terms of service, and the only way you can get that is you know you've got to apologize and grovel and and, and self censor into the future. So. Anyway, Saturday Night Live, and of course, Saturday Night Live won't be called out for that. Yeah, they're trying to make say Trump stumbled by using a actual term. Anyway, all right, moving along. On the same token of everything I'm talking about, Russell Brand, uh, who's being interviewed by Tucker Carlson. I'm going to play this clip here in a minute, but I wanted to just give you some background. Russell Brand was a lefty Hollywood socialist up until COVID, pretty much. And he would be mocked on Fox News. In fact, Greg Gutfeld had a lot of stuff mocking him as the Hollywood lefty. And he went on Fox News like 2010 or 11, and they had a big debate. And everyone just sort of ridiculed him as, you know, your typical Hollywood lefty hypocrite. COVID was an eye-opener for him. And he started, you know, maybe his evolution started before, but that's when it really started. He saw the, the, the uh, public health tyranny overnight, the lockdowns. He came around to such an extent now where I don't, I'm not saying he's pro-Trump, but he's very sympathetic to Trump and his followers. He understands what Donald Trump represents against the establishment. He is now understanding climate skepticism. One of his big issues has always been climate. He still believes climate's a problem and needs a solution, but he also sees how, like RFK Jr., that it's been hijacked by the organs of control, academia, the corporate media, the United Nations, the World Health Organization for totalitarian control of society. And I featured Russell Brand in my book, The Great Reset, Global Elites and the Permanent Lockdown, because he was just such a fantastic story of his evolution, how he came about, red-pilled. 
I guess you could say now he's a classical liberal. He's an anti-globalist. He rails on the UN, on the World Health Organization, on the World Economic Forum. He rails on corporate media. He rails on academia. This guy, I say, you know, I, I don't think it's left versus right. It's freedom versus tyranny. And I, in my book, I welcome Russell Brand with open arms uh, to the liberty fighting cause, as well as Naomi Wolf and Jimmy Dore uh, and many others, uh, Jeff, Je um, uh, Jeff Greenwald, uh, Greenwald, um, who, who uh, Glenn Greenwald, who, who was also more of a lefty, but always sort of a libertarian lefty, but he's really come around as well on a lot of these issues, or at least he's joined up with a lot of traditional conservatives on a lot of these issues. And by the way, ever since Tucker left Fox News, Glenn Greenwald has been completely absent from that network. Uh, but anyway, this is clip three, Russell Brand warning of our freedoms being uh, stripped away one by one in his Tucker Carlson interview this week, roll tape. But it seems to me that authoritarianism now is being deliberately veiled in a, the insidious language of care, concern, safety and convenience. It seems to me that we're in a time where we lurch from one crisis to another, that the crisis is always used to legitimize certain solutions. And a docile or terrified public is willing to participate in the proposed solutions that usually involve giving up their freedom. We are continually being invited to give up our freedom in exchange for safety or convenience and it seems that this process is radically escalating and i feel that this is something that we will see yet more of in the coming year i feel like you know you've spoken publicly about this that we're potentially on the precipice of serious and to use your term hot a hot war with russia and like that's being reported on in my country right now it's like we're being prepped groomed primed for war is coming that we're being kept in a state of constant anxiety in order to induce compliance that the ongoing stoking of cultural tension is to ensure that people don't begin to recognize that actually we have far more in common with one another than we do with these curious sets of establishment interests that seem to be transcendent of national democracy. To, to be explicit, I'm talking about organizations like the WHO, NATO, the WF, yes. and their astonishing influence. Added to that, the types of groups we've discussed already that have been exposed due to Lee Fang's reporting, these think tanks and apparently independent organizations who are not independent when you look at where they get their money, big pharma or the government or the military industrial complex or the kind of people they employ people from deep state agencies such as the FBI and CIA that have extraordinary affinity with the legacy media and their ongoing agenda. So what I suppose I'm sensing is that totalitarianism now will not bear the inflections or aesthetics of the tw uh, 20th century militarism, guys in medals with moustaches thumping their fists on a desk, will be calmly told with, by gentlemen with beautifully coiffured hair or elegantly speaking ladies that just for our safety and just for our convenience, we will be returning to our homes. And anyone that has an audience or a base or an ability to communicate with people to disrupt those types of narratives will be identified and destroyed. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I mean, he is on target. He is eloquent. He is nailing it from A to Z. Uh, give a hand to Russell Brand there. He is, and he's also been the victim of a, a, a character assassination for sexual harassment. They went back with anonymous women 10, 15 years earlier, made up all kinds of allegations against him in the media, in the UK. 
in a way to try to destroy him. And I think it actually worked. He got immediately demonetized from YouTube, even though he couldn't, they, they couldn't, he couldn't defend himself against any accuser that he knew a name of. And he also had no dates, times. They couldn't prove anything one way or the other. It was just a smear job because he is a threat. This was a guy that was on the inside, a Hollywood lefty who basically gave it all up and became a pretty unique figure, you know, in, in and of himself and started doing these videos. And then COVID really shifted the paradigm. But his labeling, and that's what I've been saying on this show uh, daily, is that you don't need the guys with the mustache and the Gestapo of years old and the concentration camps or the camps with watchtowers and guards and barbed wire fences for today's tyranny. Today's tyranny is very simple. It is they will deperson you and yes, debank you Saturday Night Live uh, and they will silence you. They will strip away your rights. They will strip away your property rights. They will collapse your food, your energy, your transportation, and they'll do all of this without democracy. They'll do it through corporate government collusion. His point about these large think tanks and that where they get their funding and all the other all the, all the ex-military and CIA and intelligence agencies working. We saw first hand how they our intelligence agencies tainted and went out and, and embedded themselves in social media giants uh you know like pre-elon musk twitter and everything else we have a battle on our hands and we have to fight this as i've always said throughout history the ruling class the governing class the the elite the the ivy league the institutions uh, of our government and the supporting institutions have all tried to find reasons why the rest of us can't be free and that is what we are dealing with right now. Uh, a very serious, but just fantastic, fantastic. I just want to say that again. Russell Brand, on point, one of the most articulate spokesmen of our generation. How about that? Saying that of a former Hollywood socialist actor, just, he still does acting. He was just in a recent Agatha Christie a movie, but I'm sure uh, the entertainment industry is not going to uh, you know, really support him acting and certainly any mainstream or Hollywood type publications anymore presentations because of these political views. He'll be debanked soon if he's not careful. All right. Well, here it is now. Breaking news. A vegan activist won the Oxford Union debate on meat eating. Eating meat is a racist and expression. Eating meat is racist and an expression of white supremacy. What am I talking about? To be fair, it was actually a couple years ago, but this video has resurfaced. I had never seen it. And it's pretty, pretty insane. Uh, this is the Oxford Union hosting an Oxford-style debate. And her, the lady's name uh, is Carol Adams. She actually won her debate. So when you're about the clip I'm about to show you, you need to know she persuaded the Oxford Union and all the participants there that her side was correct about eating meat being racist. I don't know there's much I can say. I'm going to show you the clip and then we'll talk about it. Uh, this is just, it's too good to be true. Clip four, enjoy. Hamburger comes with a dose of misogyny. The assumption that the best protein comes from corpses is a racist belief. 21st century animal eating requires our complicity in a new colonialism. Our whiteness is part of the problem of meat eating. If you eat animals, you take up more climate space. Meat eating is also one of the ways gender-based structures of oppression are perpetuated. Men in the West are taunted to renew their man card by eating meat because that's what real men do. 
That's the sexual politics of meat, and it reveals how unsettled masculinity really is. That's why after 9-11, nope. That's why after 9-11, a focus on men as heroes and on meat eating became part of the reclamation of a wounded masculinity. When a black man was elected as U.S. president, we saw how white this wounded masculinity was. White supremacists weaponized it, eating meat, eggs, and dairy. Images of milk-drinking white men, of platters groaning with meat, and the baiting of liberal men as so-called soy boys are all part of the (laughs) neo-Nazi messaging. Sexy cows, sexy pigs, sexy chickens, sexy fishes who all just want to have fun. That is not a joke. That is not a spoof. I spent a lot of time yesterday tracking this lady down, tracking the vote down, tracking the actual event down with the date because the media, this video had just started surfacing again on social media. And there was no name, no identification. I, I recognized the Oxford Union because I had just seen other debates there many times. Um, but she actually believes in means all this. I found her original blog post where she's explaining all this, but here's the thing I I think you need to understand. She won. Her side won. Um, Adams on being voted the winner of this Oxford Union debate, the record of the votes of the Oxford Union, the House, the the question was the House would move beyond me, despite uh, maybe because of the heckling, we won 115 votes to 105. The record of the votes of the House of the Oxford Union debate, the House would move beyond meat. Uh, and so that's it. She won by 10 votes. Her side, there was three presenters against three presenters on the other side, pushing, you know, meat eating um, as okay. And, uh, you know, this is the world. Identity politics has injected everything. So I think I'm going to have a little fun here. Let's just go through a couple of things that she said, and I'll react to it. Your hamburger comes with a dose of misogyny. Not even sure where to go with that one. Uh, I guess because, you know, male-dominated cultures throughout history have eaten meat, okay? The assumption that the best protein comes from corpses is a racist belief. Interesting. Well, I like the phrase. That's actually accurate. It's protein coming from corpses. That's colorful. And racist? Uh, You know, I'm not sure I understand that at all. Uh, 21st century animal eating requires our complicity in a new colonialism. I think she's saying there that we're colonizing animals and enslaving them because we're eating them. But what about animals and other animals? We're equal to animals. Other animals eat animals. Why can't humans eat animals? Uh, Animals even eat humans sometimes. Uh, I mean, this is part of the natural order. She goes on to say, our whiteness is part of the problem of meat eating. Hmm. I don't know. So you're telling me that African tribes or uh, New Guinea tribes or South American indigenous people, they never ate meat. It's just it's unique to white colonialism. Uh, I don't know what she's talking about. Uh, If you eat animals, you take up more climate space. Aha, I do know what she's talking about there. She's talking about uh, you, uh, your carbon footprint of eating meat. Okay. well, I don't know what else to say. Uh, This also uh, my final clip here. This is the World Economic Forum, the former head of the International Monetary Fund. Remember, we dealt with them. They're the ones that invited the Nobel Prize winning physicist, Dr. John Clauser, who TNT had the exclusive interview with uh, back in, in December, I aired that. They they then canceled him when they found out he was skeptical. But this is their, the IMF, International Monetary Fund's China division, 
Eswar Prasad talking about central bank digital currency and how it will be programmable in a way that governments will be able to dictate how, when you spend. It sounds like a warning. Go ahead, clip five. If you think about the benefits of digital money, there are huge potential gains. It's not just about uh, digital forms of physical currency. You can have programmability, you know, um, units of central bank currency with expiry dates. You could have, as I argue in my book, a potentially better and yeah, some people might see it or a darker world where the government decides that units of central bank money can be used to purchase some things, but not other things that it deems less desirable. And that really does lay it out. That's everything I was talking about, the central bank digital currency before. And we've had Carol Roth on the program before who really laid out a lot about what a central bank digital currency is. Um, and it's it's frightening stuff. Uh, I mean, and we have to challenge it at every level. The hopeful news is you have Republican governors, Republican attorney generals, and you have whole movements uh, led by people like Vivek Ramaswamy fighting this from the uh, financial industry on one angle. And now you have the Republicans and a lot of these governors and attorney generals fighting this in the legal and state level. So it has to be fought at every level. All right. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Cameron Hamilton. Uh, he is a former Department of Homeland Security uh, Div Division Director of Emergency Medical Services. We're going to be talking about the border. Uh, and we're going to be talking about um, uh, immigration. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about foreign policy uh, and Israel and a few other topics. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano. We'll be right back after these messages. TNT's Darren Denslow. Yeah, I'm talking about the illness. Actually, that has done, has been doing the rounds. Not have we only seen a, uh, a mass influx of people waving their COVID tests online. Look, I got a red line. It's like, oh my God, people are testing. Or people, you know, trying to encourage others to wear their masks. Um, but there has been a talk of a dry cough. There have been doctors connecting. We've seen loads of cases of that. Uh, have you been suffering from, you know, a bit of cough and flu or cold? Or COVID. Well, Darren, I, COVID. I, I just I just did my eighth test oh, and okay. um, I, I'm just going to keep doing it until I get lines and lines. Why? Well, because work's coming back up, isn't it? Digging deeper with D.D. Denslow on today's News Talk TNT. Right now, the forgotten poor are waiting for healing and care for life-saving medical care for a chance to live with dignity and hope. They are waiting for Mercy Ships and you. Mercy Ships is the largest floating civilian hospital in the world with volunteer medical staff and crew who donate their time to save lives. And now, as our newest state-of-the-art hospital ship sets sail, Mercy Ships will double our ability to reach children and adults who need us now. Without the work of Mercy Ships, these patients don't have another option. Mercy Ships is answering the call to serve suffering people who have nowhere else to turn. Together, we are going to some of the world's most desperate places and bringing a wave of hope and healing to those who need it most. To learn more about this wave of hope, go to mercyships.org today. Are we on the air? Am I on the air? You're on the air. On the air 24-7, your news talk giant, TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed on TNT. This is your host, Mark Morano. All right. We're joined now by Cameron Hamilton. He was the Department of Homeland Services Division Director of Emergency Medical uh, Services. 
and he was responsible for managing the uh, Southern um, Energy EMTs along the Southern border. He had a front row seat to the policies from Trump to Biden on immigration. He's also running as a conservative in a uh, in the Virginia seventh uh, congressional district. Um, and we'll see how that goes. That's great. So we'll talk to him a little bit about that and some of his other experience uh, with foreign policy. Welcome to the program, Cameron. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. So you were a sort of a front line at the at the immigration, the border. You worked now you worked for I says here from 2020 to 2023. So you were in both administrations, Biden that's and correct. Trump, right? Yes, and sir, that's what correct. did Okay, what did you witness uh, in at the at our southern border? Was there any real change in policy? Because if you listen to Joe Biden tell it in his uh, his administration, it, everything's under control. There's no real change. They're really it's all you know. They're 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 doing a great job, and people just need to be understanding and patient. Under the last administration, we saw a lot of litigation efforts to show the the claims of the actual Remain in Mexico policy. Again, the former president had had received several strategic wins in court, and so it was an effective policy. We were able to mitigate some of the huge influx that we saw. After the elections, we started seeing intelligence reports at DHS that were very clear and very apparent that we were about to get ready for a huge surge. Tens of thousands of people gathering on the southern end of the border waiting until President Biden was inaugurated, and then they knew that it would be a very different sheriff in town, so to speak. Uh, and so... Ultimately, within about three days, the southern border became a drastically different environment. Previous policies were rescinded, uh, new operational prerogatives and new prosecutorial discretion was applied within the secretary and all the way down to different avenues on the southern border, and it just became a nightmare overnight. It was pretty astonishing how, to see the numbers go from few hundred to tens of thousands in such a short time span. And so in a lot of this was once... Uh, people around the world heard that these policies were reversed overnight. It was almost like an advertisement saying, there's no more border, come on in, we're not going to stop you. Is that what happened? And that even drove even more? Well, that's a lot of the information that we receive from various intelligence networks, because we do have our eyes on the southern border. And despite what people think, we do have a partnership with the country of Mexico in understanding exactly what comes through our southern avenue of approach. And so very clearly from interviews conducted and from analysis, it was apparent that individuals were receiving word from somewhere that under the Biden administration, they would be welcomed and there would be profound humanitarian resources and financial aid and assistance for those that were coming across. So yes, we saw it very clearly from the migrants themselves. They believed that if Biden became president, they would be welcomed with open arms. Now you were there in 2021. I think Kamala Harris, the vice president, went down I believe is the Mexico, maybe a couple other Central American countries. She was looking for the root causes of all this illegal immigration. And one of the things she suggested was climate change. Did you see climate change as a major driver of these uh, border change from Trump to Biden? I'm no, to I think. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to keep <laughs> a straight face and asking that. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, you, you're absolutely right. Look, I think that uh, I think everyone with any common sense that looks at the southern border and looks at exactly what's going on there knows that climate change has nothing to do with it, frankly. I'm still astonished that the United Nations and many other international coalitions are still looking at the impact of climate trades towards mass migration. They don't migrate because of changing climates, they migrate because of economic opportunity. They migrate because they know they'll have resources. You also have to give some sympathy for people that wanna leave war-torn regions, I understand that. At the same time though, Many of these migrants come to regions of the world where they know that there will be benefits and resources provided to them 
that will that they'll personally profit from. So ultimately, it's economic in nature. It's not because they're actually being prosecuted by or persecuted by a, a rogue government. It's not because of political matters creating instability. It's simply they want to have a better life. They see American movies, American TV, American culture, and they want to be part of it. I don't blame migrants for wanting that. The problem is that shouldn't come at the expense of the American taxpayer. So in terms of like concrete, when Trump was president versus then when Biden reversed all this, well, how did it change a migrant's experience? You're saying when they came, they'd be sent back to Mexico or they couldn't even cross the border in most cases. How was it versus now they're here and they're taken on a bus, they might be taken to another city, they're put up in hotels. Just from a migrant's perspective, tell us how it would have been, say, in fall of 2020 versus fall of 2021 when Biden you know, was clearly in. How would it change crossing that border? So right now, there when, when we had the southern border surge, with DHS under the Biden administration, they deployed more personnel to the southern border to process quicker. What occurred during the Trump administration, and there's some variation depending on location and also depending on the resources there and also the claims. If you had claimed asylum, the veracity of your statements would be evaluated, but it wasn't a blanket, a blanket policy to release you into the interior of the United States. There was some level of threshold that had to be met before that was an even a viable option. So about 75% of the encounters we had were turned away. They were required to process and wait for their asylum adjudication in Mexico. Now, it's not a perfect recipe. There were key avenues and areas where that wasn't the case, but overwhelmingly, we would turn more people away in much larger quantities and require them through our federal immigration system to obtain and, and wait for their asylum processing in Mexico. Under the current administration, what they're being doing is we give them a summons and then we process them faster by deploying more personnel, taking them off the lines, and then we import them into the interior through Catholic Charities of America, the Lutheran Immigration Relocation Services, or others paying nonprofits to relocate these migrants in a much more rapid capacity with the auspice that they're supposed to return for some form of a summons. So all that we're doing is we're processing them faster, therefore increasing the demand and the flow. They know that if we process them faster, if they're held in detention centers for shorter durations of time, and if we're not deporting as many claims, uh, that more people can come. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So now a migrant will come to the southern border, will be apprehended by members of Border Patrol. And these are people that are turning themselves in. They're more than happy to because they'll come to a, a holding center. They'll be given food. They'll receive medical screening. And in a matter of two to three days, they will get shipped elsewhere into the United States interior under the hopes that, well, if we track them, and if sometimes we even give them a cell phone, we can find them down the road and they'll show up for their actual summons to report when their claim is heard or is actually uh, is actually being heard in the court. Um, so we're actually processing them much faster, bringing them into the United States at a much more rapid pace. And I think, frankly, the American people would be astonished at knowing how much money and resources we're spending on that. Each migrant costs the taxpayer anywhere between three and $5,000 just upon nipple, initial apprehension and processing. So it's just astonishing. We're speeding it up, the volumes are only increasing, and now we're seeing numbers, I believe December was over 300,000 apprehensions and encounters, and those are just the encounters that we know of. Record-breaking numbers, just astonishing. Wow, well, if you go back, one of the driving factors for the change in immigration from Trump to Biden was the children in cages. And that's all the media would harp on, the Democratic Party. 
Was that true? Was Trump unique? Were they actually j putting kids in cages? Uh, you know, that, that was the popular media view. Or did this happen as, as a part of a process and this happened under Obama and did anything change? What's the story behind the kids in cages media hysteria that uh, was pushed when Trump was president? Yeah, ironically, a lot of the photos that were used uh, to drive that narrative were actually from the Obama administration. So unfortunately, it had nothing to do with the Trump administration at all. And we know that because there were timestamps on the actual photographs and images used yeah. publicly on TV. And eventually they had to walk that back. Um, Trump took, at least his administration took, you know, again, with Director, I, Director of ICE, Tom Homan and many others, they took huge pains to try to ensure that they process people as humanely as possible. Immigration law requires, though, that you separate and process individuals to determine whether or not the individuals that come with my with minors are actually who they say they are. There's a significant proportion of individuals coming across the southern border that are being trafficked. They have no genealogical or familial relations to these children. So we have to separate them initially, determine the veracity of their claims and statements, and then ultimately uh, reunite them if so appropriate. So yes, there were children that were quote unquote put in cages, but it wasn't a cage. It was a holding center where they were given toys, they were given blankets, they were given food, they were checked on by providers. So the notion that you know we put migrants in cages was just a completely false narrative under the previous administration too. Now you worked at the Department of uh, Homeland Security. You worked at the border, you were there. When Biden came in, what's the driving ideology? You know, is it just, is it like with, for the Biden administration? I, I assume a lot of the, you know, certainly career staff, do they agree? Do people believe we should just have an unfettered border that these were mm -hmm. racist policies under Trump? Like the staff you worked with, people in the administration, people in Washington, people that work at the border, were they like, oh yeah, Biden needs to do this because we can't, this is, was racist what Trump was doing? Like what was the actual, I'm not talking about obviously, you know, GOP appointees or Trump appointees. I'm talking about career staff and the and the people that work there. Where What was their view on this shift in policy? It was pretty awful uh, the way in which their the rhetoric was changing in the administration and just the morale, I think, took a complete nosedive. Look, under Trump, he's polarizing and he has characteristics about himself that people don't always agree with. But there's no denying the fact that his policies were effective and they worked. And it was advocating for the betterment of this country and for national security. The, the morale of the line agents that were working within the Border Patrol, Office of Field Operations, Again, with uh, many other elements, you know, you have air and marine operations as well. It just took an absolute nosedive. Not only that, Secretary Mayorkas singled out ICE, wanted to reform that entire agency. So I had agents that I talked to. I worked at DHS headquarters and I got to interact with a variety of different components to include ICE, FEMA, TSA, CBP, you name it. And the morale across the board was pretty abysmal, knowing that the new sheriff that had been sworn into the White House essentially had a very different prerogative. So Inside the career civil service network of DHS, everyone knew what was about to happen. We all saw the intelligence reports. There was nobody that was immune from understanding that this was going to be an abysmal failure. And so as time unfolded, what we didn't realize was how awful the failure would end up becoming. It turned out much worse than we expected. Yeah. So in reality, the the morale is in the utter is absolutely in the toilet. Um, individuals are being given an impossible mission and they work 12, 15 hour days, little to no recourse. We're deploying people from other regions of the United States to tamponade off the uh, the egregious numbers that we're seeing along the southern border. And so it's all because of politics. I think 
There were many at headquarters where I worked as well who knew what was happening and knew that there was a heavy political influence and just felt completely demoralized at seeing the fact that none of us had any ability to change it. Wow. Well, what's the long-term solution for immigration? You go back, was it 1986 when Ronald Reagan did the Immigration Reform Act, which altered a lot of things, and you go forward. What And what era, say, since 1980, have we had the best immigration policies in place? And should we go back to that? How do we resolve this issue, uh, you know, long term? Uh, you know, you, do we deport anyone? Because that seems to be once people get assimilated, that seems right. alien to start deporting people once they're here, or at least once they've been here a while. What's your solution? What do you think we should do here? And when was a good time we could look back to? I mean, obviously, the Trump administration did a good job. But I mean, in terms of just overall policy, where where were we the last 50 years? What's the best immigration policy we could have for the southern border? I think during the 80s and 90s, it was definitely a very different environment. So I would argue that our immigration abilities and our abilities to enforce immigration law were much more prudent and much more effective. At the same time, we didn't see anywhere near the numbers. And unfortunately, that's what we've seen in the technological age now. It's enhanced some of the drive and the factors for people to want to come to the United States, not because they're fleeing persecution, but because they want opportunity and growth. So it's understandable for people to see a place where supposedly the grass is greener on the other side. I don't blame migrants at all. We would have to engage in a process of steps through which we first mitigate the current crisis to evaluate the legality of whether or not we can deport millions of people, and most estimates right now are putting it at anywhere between five and 10 million. I would be shocked if those numbers are accurate. My estimations are they would be at least double that. Um, we have an alarming amount of illegal immigrants in the United States. I grew up in Northern California. Again, we saw it as very prevalent in many different rural and farming communities there. They work hard, they don't complain, they just want an honest and good, decent life. I don't blame them at all. The problem is we also had two standards as it, became, as, it, as it pertains towards enforcing the law. We would have some migrants that would break law and be let off scot-free, whereas you had citizens breaking certain laws and facing severe penalties and punishments. That's abhorrent, and the American people should recognize the double standard there. So number one, we'd have to secure the current border and stop the influx. Number two, we need to take an honest and hard look at the amount of government resources and funds we're spending on locating people into the United States and possibly deportation. Number three, there are entire generations of people that have lived in this country for more than 15 or 20 years illegally, and they have still not obtained legal citizenship. That is a categorical failure. We have to look at how Congress might appropriate language specifically to address those issues. But to be honest, I think the courts are gonna end up playing a very significant role in the future of our immigration system because there may be, we may be setting ourselves up for legitimate claims legally to have permanent residency in the United States. I think residency is one matter uh, to contend with, but the notion that we should build pathways to citizenship is another that I find astonishing that there are some Republicans that are even considering. Um, so I think finding a way to legally document people that are here, ensure that they are recognized by our government, um, is a step forward, but citizenship, in my opinion, is a bridge too far. And we're seeing Dick Durbin and many others now talking about using illegal immigrants for the armed forces and for other avenues. We know what this means. Their intent is to expand the voting base and their intent is to make them legal citizens of the United States. And I think that's completely inappropriate and frankly, a slap in the face to all the great immigrants that came here legally. Well, actually, on that point, it was climate activist Bill McKibben, who was in the LA Times about eight years ago, 
did a column where he literally, you, know, you people talk about how replacement theory is a conspiracy theory. He didn't use that phrase, but he literally said, the more we can welcome from our southern border into the United States, the more those people will pull the, the when they become into the US, they will they will not pull the lever for climate deniers. So this is a good thing. He was urging open borders so that we could essentially vote out old, he's actually called it old white Republican deniers, climate deniers. So on that kind of, uh, you know, it was, uh, the, uh, the irony, of course, is as more people from the developing world come to the United States, their carbon footprint grows. But is that, you know, again, back to the, like, the Biden administration, was there anyone looking at Biden administration and smiling and saying in the Biden administration saying, yes, this is exactly what we want? Uh, would they high five it in the back when they see the hordes coming over the border because they're thinking, oh, these are great voters or this is creating chaos or this plays into our agenda? Who was actually for this uh, in that in the Biden administration? Was anyone cheering it on? I will say that, you know, Secretary Mayorkas, who I don't think is an evil man, I just think, unfortunately, he's not executing his responsibilities appropriately as secretary of DHS. There was a lot of accolades and public praise given to key operational influencers within the Department of Homeland Security that were providing response and support to the southern border and how we were engaging in more humane exorcism of our responsibilities. So the administration was touting and flouting all these great accomplishments about how we're engaging in a immigration system that's more humane, more compassionate, giving out awards left and right to key senior executive service officials, which in my opinion, again, was just completely bankrupt from reality. Um, we saw individuals who were engaging in publicly nice rhetoric, but in reality, it was creating an operational environment that was falling completely out of control and into chaos. We see this all the time, too, with individuals that are being uh, assaulted on the southern border. We still have apprehensions where individuals are being beaten up. Again, we have federal law enforcement officers that are being shot at by cartels on the southern border. And all we see at the headquarters level is awards and ceremonies praising the accomplishments of senior leaders for more compassionate practices. So the, the final straw was also when we saw individuals within Border Patrol that were being written up and reprimanded publicly for their use of horses on a group that, of, yeah. on, with a group of Haitians that were trying to cross the river. Again, there was, there was no whipping to be engaged in. And, and Secretary Mayorkas had a briefing a few hours before he went on the news uh, talking about how this was not an assault that had occurred. This was an individual using his service animal in an appropriate fashion, exactly in accordance with our policies and tactics. He received a briefing a few hours before then he spoke publicly condemning the action as abhorrent or as racist or as having some kind of a discriminatory motive or prerogative. Just absolutely astonishing. Um, and I will tell you that I spoke to Border Patrol agents who were physically there on site when that event occurred. Um, it was just a reprehensible slap to the face to them. So I think at the end of the day, I feel like we're in a scenario of fiddling while Rome is burning. We keep telling everyone in the world, hey, we're compassionate, America's back. That's not what the international community is seeing. And that is not what's being purveyed across our Southern border at all. All right, well, yeah, I got, I got a chance to meet Tom Holman. I was impressed when he was testifying on Capitol Hill. I got to meet him actually in the Fox News green room, but he's been battling this as well. All right, we're gonna take a break. We're talking with, uh, Cameron Hamilton, a former uh, Trump-Biden administration official in the Department of Homeland Security. We'll be right back. You're watching Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. I didn't ask to be thrown in the streets with nowhere to go. I didn't think I'd survive. But I did ask for help, and Covenant House was there for me. 
One in 10 young adults will experience a form of homelessness this year. For these kids who didn't ask to be put in this unthinkable situation, Covenant House is there. Covenant House helped me break the cycle of homelessness in my family. They gave me the love that I needed. Over 2,000 young people will sleep safely in a Covenant House bed tonight. When youth who are experiencing homelessness have a hot meal, a safe place to sleep, medical care, and love, they can overcome heartbreaking challenges and have a brighter future. They just really genuinely just wanted to help me succeed, and I'm succeeding. I'm a, I'm a speaker, I'm an author. Covenant House really helped me and really helped mold me into the woman I am today. If you or someone you love is asking for help, go to safeplacetosleep.org today. My name's Stacy. I'm 57, and I was adopted in 2020. We were adopted in 2019. And we were adopted in 2021. We had a house, um, and it sounds crazy, but it wasn't a home. The one thing that Jake and Emma brought is it became a home. When I met Dakota, he had just turned 14. You weren't there for the first this and the first that. I missed the first words, but we got a lot of other firsts. I'm watching her say, oh my God, I cannot believe I got my license. And she's like, I passed. And I'm like, girl. <laughs> See them grow. It is. They chose to love us. They didn't have to. They chose us. Family. You and you. Kids in the middle. What I thought was a complete life was nowhere near complete. <laughs> but it is now. Learn about adopting a teen from foster care. You can't imagine the reward. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Examining the issues. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed on TNT. I'm Mark Moreno. All right, we're talking with Cameron Hamilton, former uh, Trump Biden administration and Department of Homeland Security. He was the division director of the emergency medical services. One last question on immigration. I was watching a, uh, a talk actually by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who said most people think it's all you know Central Americans, South Americans coming in, but he was talking about all the Middle Easterns and all the drug cartels and how people around the world are advertising and people are buying uh, tickets to come in through the southern border and raising the specter sort of of potential terrorism and other you know, high crimes coming in. What's your reading of that, where you know people around the world are flying in potential uh, terrorism and other you know, high crimes coming in? What's your reading of that, where you know people around the world are flying in uh, and basically you know, chartering planes to bring in undesirables who would never otherwise get in the U.S.? I can say with absolute certainty that if you go to any ICE or any CBP detention facilities and look at who we have that we're processing and that we're actually apprehending, it's it will not look like what you expect. It is people from all cuts, all different parts of Africa, people from the Middle East, people from Eastern Europe, uh, you name it, they're here. People from Southeast Asia, we're seeing an alarmingly high rate of Chinese nationals and individuals from Southeast Asia. Uh, so if you go to our detention centers, it does not look like what the traditional model of what you would expect, many Mexicans or Central and South Americans. There used to be a term called OTM, other than Mexican, that was used within the immigration system and within law enforcement officers. Now, OTMs are roughly 95% of all the people that we apprehend. Very, very few of them, only about 25 to 30% of them are actually from Central and South America. The rest are coming from other regions of the world. 
Um, so now they're, again, they're coming to Central and South America and then making their way up north, but they didn't originate there. Um, so it's it's really quite astonishing. So say these people are coming from Europe and Africa, Middle East, are they literally going to South America for the explicit purpose of going through the border? Is that what we're seeing? Yes. Like possibly like, and they're just basically thought, I always wanted to go to America. Now's the time, like limited, it's almost like an ad, limited time only, you know, before Biden, if he gets voted out, they're all rushing, especially now. <laughs> yes, um, I can tell wow. you with certainty. Yes, they are. Many are. Wow. Okay. And these aren't, um, these aren't people that are there on holiday or there for a vacation. They're coming to the Western Hemisphere specifically for the purpose of coming across our southern border. Wow. Okay. By the way, just as a matter of information, what is our policy with the Canadian border? Like, can a Canadian just walk across and stay indefinitely, or do they have visas and have to go back? Uh, clarify that for me. In terms of our northern border versus southern border, what is the policy with U.S. and Canada? We do allow Canadians to transit across the United States, but again, if you overstay a certain portion of time, then yes, you have to apply for a legal visa. Um, so we do allow free flow and transfer back and forth between the Canadian border and the United States, but that's considered temporary basis. When you stay okay. longer than a certain duration of time, then you have to apply for a legal visa for a longer term stay. I had friends of mine who stayed in Europe, and if they overstayed their visa for four days, they were visited by their immigration police saying, hey, you're still here. You didn't file for your paperwork. What's the deal? Are you going to or otherwise you have to leave? We have no emphasis of that here in the United States, which is astonishing. So you are not authorized to walk across the border. In fact, you can be apprehended and arrested if you do so on the northern border. But yet we still see this as it pertains to individuals who come, turn themselves into immigration officials and then claim asylum. And, and so that's the issue that we're facing right now. Individuals know the game. They know our legal code. They know our procedures and policies. We found actual DHS memos in the hands of some individuals that have come across our southern border, knowing exactly what the policy states, what key language they have to use, they're being professionally coached. Um, and so, because there's massive amounts of money in this industry. And also when we flood certain regions of the United States, we pull agents off the line, and then other avenues of our southern border become wide open for smuggling. All right. Wow. All right. Well, let's be, you, know, you were a former Navy SEAL, so thank you for that. You made multiple trips to Israel and worked, I guess, with the Israeli Defense Forces Special Ops. Um, you have some criticisms of Biden's foreign policy as it comes to, in general and specifically Israel. What is your, how do you take, uh, what's your take on how Biden's handling uh, the Middle East right now? The Middle East is a very fractioned and kind of uh, divided region. Um, there's unfortunately not a lot of homogeneity and not a lot of brokers for peace, but there are some allies that we have there. Nonetheless, I think we've been projecting weakness all throughout the international community. There are key rebels and there's a lot of lone wolf attacks that we find at different areas and locations, but they only do so because they're probing, trying to poke the bear to see how soon the United States will respond. We do not have a clear policy and message on the status of forces that we currently have in many places of the Middle East. Not only that, our weakness invites additional attacks and rhetoric. When they see poor response, they're gonna expect poor results. So right now, we've staged personnel all across different parts of the region. Some because we're combating terrorism, like what you find in Jordan or parts of Iraq. Those are again, parts of the uh, uh, parts of the US military. They're still combating the, the remnant elements of ISIS, but still nonetheless, we are exposing personnel to insignificant risk. And because they know of the weakness of the Biden administration and frankly, Secretary Austin, many other senior defense officials, they know that if they attack the United States, our resolve 
and our response will be very measured and also very minimal so they can get away with this kind of action more and more. Under the Trump administration, we had many different factions and we had intelligence to back this up. They would not dare attack the United States because they knew if you attacked us, we'd come out guns blazing and we'd light up a fury upon them. So they weren't willing to risk their force. Now they know that the response will be very slow, if anything at all. So we've had over 160 different attacks at different times, and frankly, a very abysmal response. And it's irresponsible. Wow. Um, well, the other thing with the Biden uh, foreign policy was Afghanistan. What was your take on that when we when he hastily withdrew from Afghanistan without even the basics in place? That seemed to set the stage for his whole presidency when it came to foreign policy. It really did. Look, I, I did two tours in Afghanistan in combat, working with some brave operators and also with brave Afghans that wanted to fight with us. Many of them would actually send their families overseas to Europe because they wanted them to live in peace. I will say we all knew what was coming. Do not believe some of the rhetoric that we've been told by the military about how this was not foreseen. This was a complete accident. It caught us off guard. I can tell you that's absolute garbage. I had friends of mine that were there on the ground that knew exactly what was happening. They started seeing this coalition led by the Taliban coming back in. We knew that they had Russian experts and specialists training them, assisting them and advising them. We also knew the Chinese were heavily involved. We knew this wasn't going away. And unfortunately, we saw a friend of mine called me from the airport actually in Kabul two days before it happened saying, this looks like a VBIED just waiting to happen. It's an absolute joke here. Um, and sure enough, God rest their souls, we lost 13 Americans a few days later from a vehicle-borne IED. Just absolutely astonishing. So in my opinion, our military leadership should have pushed much harder against this administration. We should have kept Bagram Air Force Base, and we should have engaged in a withdrawal in a much more responsible fashion. I don't blame Biden for wanting us out of Afghanistan. What I do blame him and many of his officials for is how we did it because we did it in such an irresponsible way that lost American lives. So I thought it was a joke. All right. Well, this has led you now to announce your candidacy for Congress. You have a June primary here in the 7th District in Virginia to run for Congress. What compelled you to want to run for Congress? Most people look at Congress and say, what a dysfunctional mess. Uh, why do you want to go to Washington? What, what's your driving motivation? Well, we have an inculcated bureaucratic sickness in this country. And I've worked at the DOD, I've worked at the Department of State, and I've worked at the Department of Homeland Security and seen the same prerogatives of individuals that we send to Washington who have poor character and who do not really represent our values. So after a while, you can't be an apathetic bystander. I had good friends and close confidence, Nick Freitas and many other great people that have supported me that have been friends of mine. Again, Nick was a former Green Beret. He's my current state delegate and he ran in 2020. I had some great and principled people asking me and praying with us and my family whether I would consider doing something like this to bring a government back to run for we the people and not for special interests. So after time, my wife and I prayed and I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a Christian. I have to look at my children in the eyes. And when you have enough people willing to support you and enough people asking you, and when you see the sense of urgency of what this nation needs, the time to stand up is now. So. Look, we made this decision because my career and my stability was not important compared to the future that I need to secure for my children and for your children and for the next generations of Americans. So that's why I did what I did. And I resigned from DHS. I gave up my pension. I've lost my retirement benefits because ultimately this nation needs good leaders. 
Wow, that's a great story. All right, well, Cameron Hamilton, candidate for uh, Republican Congressman in 7th District of Virginia, former DHS official. Thank you so much for joining us on TNT today. I appreciate it. Thank you. God bless you. Please go to CameronHamilton.com. Oh, CameronHamilton.com. All right, for his congressional uh, race. All right, thank you. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano. We'll see you next time.